Welcome to the Vintage Podcast. It was my very great pleasure recently to welcome Richard Lloyd Parry, distinguished foreign correspondent, to the podcast studio where he told me about his extraordinary and moving new book, Ghosts of the Tsunami. Richard Lloyd Parry, thank you so much for joining us here this afternoon. Um, now, Ghosts of the Tsunami, the first thing I thought when I started to read it was what a harrowing book it must have been to write and also what a complicated one. Can you just tell us a little bit about when you first came to the idea of wanting to put down these stories? Yes, well, I was a, uh, a foreign correspondent living in Tokyo when the disaster happened in early 2011. And the first I knew of it was the, the earthquake, which shook Tokyo very strongly, stronger than any other earthquake I'd ever felt. And a few hours later, I was on the road up to the disaster zone where I spent, I suppose, most of two weeks traveling from place to place, looking at the communities which had been smashed by this enormous wave. And I, I realized very early on, although I didn't have the leisure to give it much thought, that this was a, you know, a huge and historic, remarkable uh, natural disaster and human tragedy and something that would lend itself to, to treatment in a book. But it took me a long time to find the right way in. Um, I, I didn't want to write a book about the whole thing because you can't do that. And it was a few months later that I came across a story in a very small village which had been hit by the tsunami where there was a school. The, the tragedy suffered by this school was really great and unimaginable, even by the standards of the larger disaster. Um, and it was there at the school, uh, as I got to know the people who lived in the community, the parents of the children at the school, that I began to find a central story on which I, through which I could tell this much bigger story of the wider tragedy. What was it that had made the disaster at the school so loom so large in your mind, seem, as you say, so enormous even by the scale of natural disasters? There were 18,500 people died in the, in the tsunami. And of course, all of those individual stories were tragedies. But the, the, the story of the school um, eclipsed all the others, really. Uh, it was a school of about 100 or so kids. Uh, the earthquake happened. They evacuated the school according to the, the, the manual, according to the, the, the rule book. Um, and then they, they waited in the playground. And instead of evacuating uh, up the hill away from the, uh, the river and the coast, as schools all over the area were very efficiently, for some reason, the teachers stayed put. They remained in the classroom, not just for 10 minutes or 20 minutes, but for nearly an hour. And at the end of the hour, the tsunami caved in, came in, overwhelmed the school, uh, and washed away the, the teachers and the children, and 74 of the children at the school died. It was one of the single greatest losses of life, and it was the only school, really, in the whole region where children died in such large numbers. And were you able to get to the bottom? Or in fact, did this happen straight away when you, when you uh, saw the circumstances to work out why that had happened, why they had, had stayed there? For a long time, um, that was uh, a mystery. 
it was a mystery to journalists covering it, but also, of course, to the parents of the children who died there, some of whom became very active and motivated in trying to find out the truth about what had happened. Um, it was made more complicated because, of course, nearly all the witnesses to the tragedy had died. There were almost no survivors. There was one teacher who survived. And again, to the frustration of the families, he pretty much disappeared. He went to ground. He wouldn't speak. And it encouraged this idea that there had been a cover-up at the school, that the truth was being hidden, uh, and that the authorities were colluding uh, in keeping the facts of what happened from the families and from the public. Of course, as a journalist, there is then a sort of ready-made story, as it were. There's something that is going to have an immediate impact um, on the people who read about it. And also, there's a sort of mystery to be solved, as it were. But it came back to me time and time again how interesting it is and challenging it is to be in the position of a journalist um, in those kinds of situations, particularly one away from their native country. That must weigh quite heavily on you. It's one of the most important things, and one always struggles to get it right, is striking the balance between becoming emotionally involved involved in the story, which of course you can't avoid when you're you're talking to the, the parents of uh, parents who've lost perhaps all their children in a, a, a random natural disaster like that, and on the other hand, keeping some detachment from it. I mean, you really you can't allow yourself to carry every single tragedy as your own personal burden. It would be impossible to to work in those circumstances. It would simply be too sad. But I think it's something that people in those situations find their own way of dealing with. And I don't think being a journalist reporting on disaster and tragedy is all that different from being, for example, an aid worker or a medical worker or someone who deals in, in, in grief and, and suffering. Um, I mean, if you're, uh, if you're talking to a, uh, uh, you know, a, a specialist doctor or a, uh, a psychotherapist and they give you bad news, you don't expect them to, to, to break down and start crying and, and exhibit emotion. You need them to keep detached, uh, to, to stand a step back. And in some way, that's the job of journalists as well. Absolutely. But it's it's in some ways a different kind of challenge because you are forming a narrative, aren't you? You are um, not a narrative that will necessarily go unchallenged and that, of course, may be altered by all sorts of subsequent events and facts and investigations. But you are setting a narrative. And that seems to me a great responsibility in, in many ways and of great skill, actually. And also, of course, very important to do. You've got to get stories out there. Yes, the... The challenge in, in a situation like that is often, funnily enough, deciding what to leave out. Uh, it was such a vast disaster. I mean, it, it affected hundreds of miles of coastline. Uh, 18,000 plus people died. Hundreds of thousands lost their homes. Millions were affected in some way. You know, you can't hope to tell more than a tiny fraction of those stories. And you really have to decide quite early on what you're going to concentrate on, who you're going to return to and go back and talk to again. And then the trick, if you can pull it off, is to 
try to make those stories representative of the whole. Mm. And um, the, the central story in, in this book is is the story of the school, Okawa School. But I also tried to use that, that framework to bring in other aspects as well. Um, I mean, there are stories about other people I, 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 I encountered who who met with the, the tsunami, uh, in particular a, a priest, a Buddhist priest, who ended up um, conducting exorcisms of people who believed that they'd been possessed by the spirits of the dead of the tsunami. So there were widespread psychological, group psychological consequences as there are in all in all disasters and I guess that those are the kind of things that become something that you can investigate and unpick at greater length in book form so when you are working as a reporter you're really attempting to establish the most important of the facts and get them out there but but writing a book that's an that's an entirely different thing isn't it yes I mean these disasters follow uh, a a pattern Um, you have the, the immediate catastrophe, and then the struggle is just to find out you know what has happened and where, uh, and then you have the the response to the emergency and, and that period of, of chaos and confusion where people are trying to bring, bring in in food and water and save people whose lives are still at risk and recover the bodies and all that, uh, and, and then you have a, a sort of slow steady. Uh, return towards normality which happens over several months and you know for journalists as for aid workers uh, you, you work in a different way depending on which stage you're at but it was very notable that um, it began about six months after the, the tsunami this was a point where uh, nobody was uh, no, nobody was in need of immediate medical attention they'd been treated everyone had some shelter everyone had enough to eat or drink and you might say that a kind of normal life was returning. And it was at that point when people had the leisure to sit back and take a breath and to look at their own lives and consider what they'd come through. That was when the psychological pain really began to be felt. And that was also the moment when people started to see ghosts. When you say ghosts, just explain a little bit more about that do you mean they saw literally manifestations as they thought of those their loved ones there um those that they had lost or whether there was more widespread um phenomenon of sort of what we might call kind of paranormal activity yeah it it really ranged it there weren't so many cases that i heard of of people seeing their 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 dead relatives although there was some of that it, it varied um uh, you know, at one end you had uh, a lot of what you might call urban myths, um, you know, f- the sort of familiar stories. There, there was a story that was much repeated about a taxi driver one night who was flagged down by a uh, figure in the shadows. The passenger got in the back. The cab driver notices that this woman's clothes are soaked with water and she gives an address which he knows is a place that doesn't exist anymore. But he very obediently, politely drives to the place opens the door and there's no one in the back of the cab. Mm-hmm. And that's a story that in different forms was repeated quite a lot. It's, a, it's an urban myth. Um, no one could say who it, it had happened to. It was a friend of a friend, that, that kind of, uh, of narrative. But then there were other stories. Um, 
uh, you know, often it was just a, a, a spooky feeling people had. Or there was one man who uh, hated to go out uh, in the rain because when he looked into the puddles, he thought he could see eyes looking back at him. Uh, there was a, a story of a, a fire station which had re- kept receiving uh, a phone call and when they answered on the, uh, the emergency line, there was no one there. And they eventually identified a place where, where people had been, had been lost, uh, uh, had not been saved. They went there, said some prayers, and the strange phone calls disappeared. And then there were these other most remarkable cases which um, I heard about to this priest uh, of people who really believed um, and showed signs of being possessed by the spirits of people who died. Is this something that you looked at and thought, okay, clearly this is the, the expression of trauma, the urban myth that you mentioned, I suppose most readily explains itself as just that idea of people just disappearing suddenly and us having no idea what's happened to them and where they've gone. But as you worked through these stories, did you feel that they were culture-specific, country-specific? Did you feel that if this disaster had happened in another country, another society, it would have manifested in different ways? Uh, It would, and I I did find that. And I... In, in looking into all this, I learned a, a great deal about this side of Japan, despite having lived there a long time. I didn't realise um, how deep this um, sense of the presence of ancestors went in in, in modern Japan. Uh, in many modern Japanese homes, when you visit them, there's a, a little shrine in the corner, and it's a, a Buddhist shrine to the ancestors, and people don't talk about them very much. In many ways, they look just like a kind of ornament. But it, it became clear that, um, that that many ordinary people um, instinctively have this sense of the, the presence of, of the dead, of their dead relatives, their ancestors, and a, a great concern and an anxiety that those spirits should be happy and content and soothed in their afterlife. And the... The phenomenon of, of, of a tsunami, a, a sudden violent natural disaster like that, in this belief, robs the dead of their peace of mind. Uh, and that was a, an aspect of the suffering uh, of people who survived the, the tsunami that I hadn't reckoned mm. with at all. You know, people were, uh, were struck by grief, uh, that they were, they, they were physically uh, shaken up and they'd lost their homes. But there was also this sense that... Uh, that the dead were uh, in in misery uh, and in need of soothing, which gave them another burden. That's fascinating, just that they couldn't work through that without some kind of intervention, presumably. You mentioned exorcisms and and prayers, that many of the the things that we think of as ways to... um, provide a kind of palliative service to people who've been traumatised and grieving wouldn't apply in this situation. They needed a different approach. Yeah, it's changing this. But overall, I think it's true in Japan that people are less inclined than than in the West to turn to what you might call mental health professionals, therapists, counsellors, people Mm -hmm. like that. There are such people in in Japan, but there are fewer of them. And people are not so used to, to... going to them for their, the help they can give. They tend to rely more on, on family, on community, uh, 
communities were torn apart by this disaster. People, even the people who survived, were scattered by it. So a, a lot of people were suffering greatly but didn't have the, the, the natural support networks that they would normally have had. And I think that was a reason why, why many people turned to spiritual advisors, to, um, to mediums, uh, to shamans, to even to exorcists as well as to priests. And that part of the country, northeast Japan, the area known as Tohoku, is famous within Japan as being a place where the supernatural is quite close to the, the surface. So there's a long tradition of, um, of mediumship and shamanism and it still continues, and when this disaster happened, those people came into their own. I think people use the, the resources that, that are to hand. Um, you know, I think when things like that happen here, uh, you pick people to look, look to community, you know, they, they look to the professionals. Um, in northeast Japan, it was the natural thing to do if you'd lost your children to go to the, 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 the local lady who was known to be able to communicate with people on the other side. It wasn't done self-consciously. It was just what seemed obvious. I remember I, I talked to one man um, for a long time. He was, uh, he'd been, he'd, he was a very sweet person, um, an ordinary working man, a, a, a builder, really, like a joiner in a, in a little town. He hadn't been directly affected by the tsunami. He'd felt the earthquake, um, and he'd been down to the sea and witnessed the, uh, the, the, the desperate situation there. And, and when he'd come back, he'd been, uh, he became suddenly uh, very upset and started behaving very strangely. And he and his family believed quite without doubt that he'd been possessed by spirits of people who died in the tsunami different personalities, even animals who drowned in the tsunami seemed to be taking over his body. And he went to see this priest who recited the sutras, sprinkled him with holy water and very dramatically cast out these spirits. And I remember talking to him afterwards and, and saying to him, he seemed a very ordinary chap, saying to him, um, so, you know, are you religious? Are you, are you a religious person? And he said, no, not at all. And what he meant was that he didn't regularly go to the uh, the Buddhist temple and, and pray and light incense. He didn't go to the Shinto shrine very much. By his definition, he wasn't religious, but he just told me without any self-consciousness that he'd been possessed by supernatural creatures. To him, that wasn't religion. That was just the way things are. That was what everyone recognised. Six years on... I'm wondering how the country seems to you now, how much it seems to have incorporated, um, somehow accepted the, the tragedy. If you go to Japan today, even if you go to the areas that were washed away by the tsunami, you might not even notice that anything had happened. It's all been completely tidied up. Uh, the rubble has been removed most of the uh, ruined buildings have been have been torn down and cleaned up. The villages along the coast, the towns, have, have not been rebuilt. You can't live there anymore. Your people will be allowed to establish businesses like fishing and factories, but not to live there. They're relocating their, their communities. So 
in some ways, there's been a remarkable recovery, but that is deceptive. The recovery is superficial and skin deep. And the, the psychological pain and anguish, um, I think, continues. It's not obvious. Uh, you know, Japanese people, are, many of them are not demonstrative in uh, expressing their, you know, their grief and anguish. But when you talk to people and you try and scratch a little below the surface, it's certainly there. And these apparently you know, supernatural manifestations were just one example of that. It does strike me as interesting that many of the um, cultural associations one might immediately have with Japan, probably terribly cliched, are of delicacy, of delicate blossoms and paper screens and delicate mats and delicate food and that just seems so at odds with what you were describing what's evidently the truth I wonder that must be in some way it must be kind of be related in some way behind that that sense of delicacy and you're quite right that is part of the, the traditional Japanese aesthetic there's uh, there's a sense of what in Japanese is called mono no aware which is rather hard to translate but it refers to it's about the, the beauty of things, the beauty of the material world, but also the sense of fragility and vulnerability that underlies human existence and, and the natural world. So perhaps that's what the link is. I mean, I think you know many, many cultures find beauty and poignancy in the fragility of life and the way in which... Uh, Disaster and death and violence can can come so so suddenly uh, and and blight human lives. But in Japan, that experience is probably more real and part of everyday life than in many countries. Richard, thank you so much for coming to talk to us about it, and, and thank you so much for writing such an exceptionally profound and, and moving book. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening and I really hope you enjoyed our conversation and indeed enjoy Ghosts of the Tsunami. The best way to have your say about the Vintage Podcast is to review it on iTunes and if you do, you might even win a free copy of the book. Until next time.